Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. God, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for this, this, this evening we've got, Lord, to be able to study your word. We thank you for the book of Hosea and the unique challenge it poses and especially how it not only challenges the readers, the original readers of this text, Lord, but it still challenges us today. And I know I personally was challenged as I prepared the study. And, and we're just we're just so thankful, God, that you use your word and that your word is active. As we read your word, Lord, your Holy Spirit um, teaches us and guides us into the truth and, and challenges us. And we're very, uh, we're very thankful for that, Lord. And we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, hello, everybody listening here in person on this Zoom call and also in podcast land. Welcome, my big rev. And we see here, uh, I kind of put last week uh, on the top of the page here. I, I know some of you in podcast land, you can't see the page, but we've got like, I kind of broke down how the book of Hosea plays out. And the first three chapters is basically God saying his people are unfaithful. And the next couple of chapters are God's people don't know him. And it's almost like God's leveling down indictments. And so, yeah. And so here we're starting a new section. God's people are not devoted to him. This is not something you want God to say. You, and so, and the idea here would be that normally these people would say, yeah, I'm doing God's thing and I'm got one of God's people. And I mean, I'm here being faithful to God and doing my God thing. And, and God's saying, no, that is not indeed the case. And so, yeah, so that just starts this new, this new section of Hosea. And let's just, let's just open up here. So we have chapter six, verse seven to chapter seven, verse 16. I started here with uh, to give a little bit of context. I know I know the opening section here is, is verses seven to ten, but I threw the famous verse six in there too. You remember this? We talked about this last week. Jesus dropped this verse on Pharisees twice in the Gospels. For I desire steadfast love, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Okay, that's our lead in. Now verse seven. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. Now this kind of is odd. We're thinking, oh God, you're talking about Adam. You're, oh yeah, Adam who who transgressed the covenant. Okay, God, I guess had a covenant with Adam to a degree. You can eat of you can eat of all these other trees, but not that one. And if you do, there's going to be consequences. There's an understanding, and but no, it's a place. And so commentators or there's a fascinating theory that Adam was actually a city. And they're not talking about the person Adam, but Adam kind of is linked to the word for ground. And, and so here we have, there's a place where um, they dealt faithlessly with God at this place. And that, that, they, that God is actually talking to what was happening 
around that area. And there's something that had happened that, that the people reading this would go, oh yeah, we know what he's talking about. We don't. We're reading this and scratching our head and saying, what in the world? What can we take from this? Well, it had gotten that bad. We can look at this and, and pull out from this a couple quick things. The first one is the priests are overtly evil. Look what he says here. The priests band together as robbers lie in wait for a man. They murder on their way to Shechem. They commit villainy. Now, this is prophecy, and prophecy is like the, the, the twin sister of poetry. So it's possible that God wasn't saying that there's a band of priests that are out trying to kill people vigilante style. That's at least possible because he uses a, 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 like a simile or like a metaphor, as robbers lie in wait. So he's using something poetically here. But we can we can take this for granted. Or excuse me, we take this at face value and realize these guys were bad. They may not have been a roving band of marauding villainous people, but they were so bad that God compared them to that. The priests who have the unique responsibility to represent the people before God. They're doing something so overtly evil that God calls them out and that God links them in the same sentence with that, that's horrible. And the second thing here, yeah, definitely the corruption of the spiritual leaders. You bet. It had gotten that bad. Defiled worship. Check this. Verse 10, in the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. And if God's going to call something horrible, you probably ought to pay attention. Horrible. Ephraim's whoredom. That's the northern kingdom, Ephraim, poetically, is there. Israel is defiled. Wow. There was something about Gomer when she played the prostitute that defiled her. That's the image that God uses for his people who were instead playing the prostitute regarding their worship. They claim faithfulness but then they do, they do everything else but be faithful. They run to the Baals and they run to other places. It had gotten that bad. The priests were messed up and they were leading a religious system that was messed up. So beyond messed up. Make text it in corrupt spiritual leaders pander to the masses. They give in to what the people want instead of leading people towards God. Idolatry and pagan worship generally devolved into sexual immorality, thus Israel's whoredom. Yeah, I like that. It, it, the text here doesn't literally mean they, they, they were sexually immoral, but it sure gives that flavor, doesn't it? And especially with the Baal worship of the time, yeah, it, it, this, is, this is not good. And yeah, and yeah, if they were running to Baal, Daniel said they were meant child sacrifice. Yeah, and you can argue maybe maybe not so much Baal, but definitely um, other like Molech or Moloch, either one of them would have a child sacrifice involved. Um, yeah, that's the spirit. I, I, I firmly believe that that, 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 that that idolatrous spirit that still wants to sacrifice children is present today. And we see it with the abortion industry. Um, the, yeah, um, God sees. God sees what goes on. Verse 10, in the house of Israel, I have seen, God sees. 
Just let that sink. Let that sink in. God sees. Ouch. God knows what's going on. You see, as a pastor, I, I'm reading these verses here, and they really kicked my butt today. Because this is probably what I would be if I was in Hosea's day. Or these priests would probably be like my colleagues. And God is calling them out. They are overtly evil. Now, if you're following a pastor out there in terms of a church, or you're, you're submitting to a pastoral team or an elder team, and they are overtly, like outwardly evil, you know, they get away from that. But each one of us has just a little bit of Pharisee in us, where we may not be overtly, outwardly evil. But what do we cherish on the inside? What are the things that we hold on to inside our hearts? What are the sins and the idolatrous things that we that we we struggle with giving to God. Each one of us has a sacred cow that we hold on to. We got to be careful about that. Maybe that thing is, is some kind of comfort. Maybe it's some kind of sexual thing. Maybe it's some kind of pleasure, what I meant by that. Maybe it's like about security. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your career. Something about you is more about you and less about God. We have to watch out for that. And this kicked my butt as a pastor because he's going after the priests here. Like, oh, man, if he's going after them, oh, man, what would he say? What would he say to you and me if, we, if Hosea was, was reading this text to us? How would he contextualize it for our idolatry, for our wickedness, for our sin? God sees. What defiles our worship? Israel's worship was defiled. What defiles our worship? What muddies the water of our worship? Think about that. Yeah, if you're worshiping something, Sandy said, it takes an idolatry. If you're worshiping, worshiping an idol versus worshiping the one true God, okay, yeah. It's really tempting in worship to worship yourself. Because again, you go back to the things that you hold on to the most. Maybe there are arguments you have with God. Maybe there's things that you want in this life most of all. You can't have them or you don't have them. And so you're harboring this bitter spirit. I don't know. Maybe you go to worship God and your worship is more about you than it's about God. And that certainly is a possibility. I don't know. What defiles that worship? Worshiping outwardly, but inside of your heart, you're, you're, you're harboring all this ick. And Debbie texted into defiles to use something holy for evil. Yeah. I mean, worship is an outward thing, but worship is an inward thing. And the spirit of the Pharisee would keep the outward in check, but the inward is on fire. It's going crazy, burning with passions and desires and, and, and hypocrisy. Yeah, we don't want we don't want to have hypocrisy here. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. James 3 applies to leaders in the church. Thanks, Mick. Yeah, and this is like, but what, what defiles your word? So it's, we, we can look at the priests and go, they were leading the, 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 the culture to, 
to worship poorly, but the people were still worshiping. What defiled you? That you need to. This needs to be something you take with you. Is your worship defiled? We pray not. But if Hosea was reading this in your house, what would he say? I don't know. That's something if you, to, to read God's word at face value. An ancient text like this can preach right now. Two promises, 611 to 7-2. So again, we're ending chapter 6. We're starting chapter 7. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. Maybe Judah thought they were getting off scot-free. No, God has words for them too. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, well, that's nice. That's a nice thought that one day God's going to, 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 to flip the script, the, the, this idea of the day of the Lord, and that was the basic Jewish hope, is that one day the Messiah was going to come, was going to flip everything around, and the Jews wouldn't be on the bottom anymore. They'd be, you know, God would, res there'd be something different. And, and you know, the, the, a couple of the apostles had that with Jesus as well. Like, hey, you know what? You're the Messiah. What's that going to mean? Is, is the end going to come? Is this going to, are you going to take on Rome? Is the constellation of Israel going to come? Here we go. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal, heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed. Oh. And the evil deeds of Samaria. Samaria was a city in the north. For they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, the bandits raid outside. So we got dealing falsely, like the people were deceitful. The thief breaks in, they're taking advantage of each other. And the bandits raise that raid outside. They're just treating each other poorly out in the streets as well. This whole culture is messed up. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. Ooh, that's kind of terrifying. Make text it in. Let's remember that Jesus stressed this on the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just a matter of external observances, but God looks at the heart. Before God, lust is on equal footing with adultery, hatred of the murder. Sandy texting, we defile worship when we take God's intended purpose for something and twist it to meet our needs. Ooh. We defile worship when we take God's intended purpose for something and twist it to meet our Oh, she repeated it. Oops. Okay. We have a, there we go. See, I, I read your text, people. Two promises. Well, evil will be exposed. For those who are victims, you want that evil to be exposed. For those who are tired of being taken advantage of, you want that evil to be exposed. But for those who are like cockroaches, enjoying the darkness, that light comes in and exposes and is terrifying. Evil will one day be exposed. Even as God sets things right, even as God balances out whatever in his economy has got to be figured out, whatever God does to restore Israel, as it happens on that full and final day, evil will still be exposed. And second of all, God remembers. Maybe these people thought that they could get away with things. Maybe they were thinking, yeah, 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 God has other fish to fry. God doesn't care about me. God doesn't really care about how I live my life. As long as I show up on the Sabbath and give my sacrifice or put a coin in the coffer, as long as I do my religious part, as long as I keep my appearances, as long as I'm doing the things to keep the priests happy, blah, 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 blah. As long as I do that, what's God going to say? How much more of me is he supposed to expect? God, he's got other things going on. He's not going to know what's going on with me. 
God doesn't see me. I mean, come on. Come on. There's no way God's going to get He might care for the priest. I'll pay attention when he's going after those bozos. But me? Come on. Yeah. This is a God mic drop moment. This stuff that you're doing is going to come before God's face, he says. Evil will be exposed and God remembers. See, the God of justice, for God to be the God of justice, God has to see the evil. God has to hate the evil and God has to punish it. He has to see the sin. He has to hate the sin. And he has to punish that sin. That's God's justice right there. Well, God doesn't see me. Wrong. What a callous society that society must have been. For God to have to remind them that he sees them. They're not going to get away with their nonsense. God sees them. Make text of this is so cool seeing this is in the Old Testament because it demonstrates that God never changed. The problem in Hosea's time and Jesus' time was faulty spiritual leaders. Yeah, and, and, and faulty spiritual leaders, but that, that excuse only goes so far. Because God doesn't just go after the spiritual leaders. God goes after the people, the rank and file. God's going after them too, saying, hey, what are you doing? Breaking in, marauding in the streets. What are you doing? And say, you can have a bad leader, but if you're still following that bad leader, that's going to go on you. Mm. Everyone is accountable. Yeah. I mean, John the Baptist is telling, telling everybody, repent. Everybody who showed up, repent. Repent. Royal evil, seven verses three to seven. By their evil, they make the, the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to serve the fire from the kneading of the dough till it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For the hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders, and the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven as they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls on me. What in the world was that all about, God? Two things. You see, the first one we don't get. But they would have gotten immediately. The second Kings chapter 15. Can I read it to you? Let me read you 2 Kings chapter 15, all right? They had four assassinations of the king. Hosea is talking about that here. Here we go. This is from 2 Kings 15. In the 38th year of, of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel and Samaria six months. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father has done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. So Shalom, the son of Jebesh, conspired against him and struck him down, put him to death, and then reigned in his place. What? Yep. So here we go. Shalom, the son of Jebesh, began to reign in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah. He reigned one month in Samaria. Then Manahem, son of Gadi, came up to Tirzah and came to Samaria, and he struck down Shalom. Oh, and then reigned in his place. Okay, next. 
Um, in the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menahem, son of Gadi, began to reign over Israel. He reigned 10 years in Samaria, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from his days from all the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. So, Pul, how about that for a name? Pul, the king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave, gave Pul 10,000 talents of silver that he might help him to confirm his hold on his royal power. Menahem extra extracted the money from Israel, that is, from all the wealthy men, 50 shekels of silver from every man to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land, and Menahem slept with his fathers. And Pekahiah, his son, reigned in his place. So that guy didn't get assassinated. But what did he do instead? He extorted the people to pay off the foreign invader. The assassinations continue. Here we go. In the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, son of Menahem, began to reign over Israel and Samaria. He reigned two years. That's not very long. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And Pekah, the son of Ramalia, his captain, conspired against him with 50 men of the people of Gilead. See, Hosea mentioned Gilead. Here we go. And struck him down in Samaria in the citadel of the king's house with Argob and Ariah. Put him to death, and you guessed it, he reigned in his place. This is like the Game of Thrones book. It's just like you, just, you kill the king and you become the king. This is horrible. In the 52nd year of, the king, of, of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Ramalia, began to reign over Israel and Samaria. He reigned 20 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ijon, Abel, Beth Ma'akah, Genoa, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee in the land of Naphtali. And he carried the people to Assyria. Ah, this is future. This is a little bit of future for Hosea's audience. Remember I kept telling you that the northern ten tribes, the Assyrians were going to come through and they were going to cart them off? This is what we're talking about here. Then Hosea, a version of the word for Hosea, different consonant, but Hosea, the son of Elah. I mean, actually, no, it was the same consonant. We talked about Hosea. The same name as Hosea here. But it's a king. The son of Elah made a conspiracy against Pekah and struck him down, put him to death, reigned in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Assassinations, anger, passions. What's going on in these verses we read from chapter 7 of Hosea? Assassinations, anger, passions. At no point in this... We know from our study of, of King David, what happened with King David? King Saul was anointed king. And then David was anointed king. The prophet would come along and God would make his choice. We don't have any of that here. We have the people coming in, killing the king, and then saying, not asking God, hey, so what is God, do you want me to rule now? What do you want me to do? What do you want the nation to do, God? No, none are calling upon God, God says. None. None. All of them, verse 7 says, are as hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. I just read to you the chapter of 2 Kings 15, how they devoured their rulers. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. You see, assassinations, anger, and passion. Second of all, none of them, none of them are calling upon God. Selfishness will always fill the God void. There's a void here. God is just not present. 
He's not active. They're not calling upon him. It's like a Romans 1 idea of just letting people to their sin. God not intervening. People are stubborn, Mick says. Rather than recognize God and repent, people would much rather see things destroyed than to turn to God. If that ain't depravity, I don't know what is. Without God's irresistible grace, that's how all of us should be. would be. Yeah, exactly right. None of us are going to turn to God on our own. Selfishness will always fill the God void. Always. Dependence issues. 7, 8 to 12. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Who's made a pancake? You got to flip that sucker over, don't you? You wouldn't let it just sit there in this bubble. It's going to get crispy on the bottom of the top. You're never going to eat that cake. You're going to serve that to somebody and they're going to go, what? This is useless. Yeah, that's the point. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength. He knows it not. He knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him. No, he's not going after the gray hairs. He's letting him know he's being compromised. And he doesn't even know it. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. If they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him. For all this, Ephraim is like a dove. Oh, how romantic. God's not being romantic. God's given it to him straight. He is silly and without sense. Calling to Egypt, calling to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to the congregation. They had dependence issues. I'm going to close by reading 2 Kings 17 tonight. How many texts in there? I don't know if it's people rather... If people rather see sin and destruction, I think people are more self-absorbed, have, have a me first, me syndrome. So God is so far away, it's easy to be selfish. Yeah, they got that God void. And they these people back then, they thought they could just get away with anything. And then they, 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 their nation was in their hands. And so here we have in this latter part here, this is in the midst of the Syro-Ephraimite war where we had the Northern tribes were going to go against Judah. And so they involved um, other foreign powers to help out. They made alliances. We're going to be talking about that here in just a moment, but the North allied with the Syria and then allied with Egypt. And he's calling him like a ninny, like a dove, like you're just going this way and that way. You don't know. Um, you really don't know what you're doing there. Um, creeping compromises render them useless. There's something about their culture they were taking upon themselves compromises. You know, our culture likes to say the compassionate Christian, you can be compassionate Christian, but if you're compassionate Christian, you need to compromise your convictions. Otherwise, you're not really that compassionate. And I disagree with that wholeheartedly, of course. They had creeping compromises that rendered them useless. What kind of compromises would they have? It's the same kind of compromises that the good king, good king, Solomon had to have, didn't he? He kept bringing in new wives. And some of those marriages were geopolitical entities. Oh, yeah, let's ally with this person. Well, they have a daughter, don't they? Well, bring, them, bring her on over. She's marriageable age, sure. All right, let's add her to the list. 
And now we have an alliance. Okay. But with that daughter, with that new wife, with that new concubine, came her gods. Compromise. Compromise. Compromising, creeping in. A slippery slope that gets just a little bit more slippery after every day. Eventually, those compromises are going to render it useless. Refusing to repent is going to lead to judgment. I can't, baby. Sorry. She just handed me a cup to open and I can't do it. <sighs> yeah, this is uh, Rob Bell and the Emerging Church. Yeah, it's just at some point it's just useless. They don't stand for anything. It's cultural relativism mixed with postmodernism. So you get nothing but soup. And at some point, soup just mixes. And it's just syncretism. It's what the Baal worship and the Yahweh worship was turning into in this day. Syncretism. Nothing really happens. God's not worshipped. When you add God to a platter and worship everybody else. It is indeed, you're right, Mick. It's pluralism at its finest. They refuse to repent. It's going to lead to judgment. God says, you're, you're a dove, and I'm going to just spread my net over you. And there's going to be judgment. I will discipline them according to this report that's going to be made. What report is that? We don't know. Maybe a report of a new alliance they made with some other foreign ruler and bring on their foreign gods. Because you know what? You're already worshiping Baal. Why not worship the gods of Egypt? Why not worship Ishtar? Why not worship everybody else? I mean, just bring them on. Have a buffet of gods to worship. I guess our God doesn't care. It's just a wrong kind of compromise. There's a really good kind of compromise. When you're at, when you're at, with arguing with somebody and when you're having an issue in your marriage and a relationship, compromise is a really good thing. But when your culture is expecting you to compromise your convictions, compromise is a very bad thing. Because guess what? Culture's not going to compromise. Culture holds the line. They circle the wagons and they do what they want. But they expect you, Christian, to compromise. They expect you to move the goalposts. They expect you to change. There's a wrong kind of compromise. The Great Lament, 713 to 16. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. you got to understand, this is God throwing some anthropomorphisms in there. This is God appearing just a little bit weaker, not as much sovereign to communicate something here. Like I, I would do it, but they're doing, no, no, they're not holding God hostage. God's just letting them know that what they have done has consequences. They do not cry to be from the heart, but they instead wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves, but then they rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. 
This shall be the derision, their derision in the land of Egypt. This is a great lament. What God's saying here is, I cared for Israel. And Israel responded to all that love with rebellion. Ooh, nice point, Sandy. I long to redeem them, but they speak to me falsely. God longs to redeem us. We turn to idols. We are denying his lordship over our lives. We do what we do because we want what he want. Yeah. I mean, from our perspective, yes. Um, just remember, we don't control God's sovereign plan. We don't have the ability to stop God from doing anything. When people say, well, let go and let God No, you letting go has no providence over God. Or it's like a guy, it's not God, like God is saying, well, finally she let go. Now I can finally deal with it. No, God, God is the one who is king. And God is letting, but it's still a great point about what God's saying here is, hey, you know what? There's consequences here. God's lamenting where the relationship has gone. Go back to the top. You don't know me. God's people are not devoted to him. If you were devoted to him, would God be saying these things? No. God cared. You can see God looking at his, at his people lovingly. I cared for you. I built you up. I was there for you, come what may. And you're responding to that with rebellion? You're going to rebel against me? I mean, seriously? Let me just close by reading portions of 2 Kings 17. Because you see where Hosea is getting this. You see what God... You can see God's heart. You can see God's heart here. In the 12th year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel. He reigned nine years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. What's Hosea, Hosea going to do? Well, Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea. For he had sent messengers to sow. Who sow? I'll tell you. So is the king of Egypt. Oh, I see. You see, God just got done calling them a dove. Because here you're sending a messenger. You're going to ally with Assyria. And oh, now you're going to go to Egypt. You don't know what the heck is going on here. He offered no more tribute to Assyria. As he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria. For three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, in the cities of the Medes. Now this is still future for Hosea's audience. But this is coming! The same Hosea king he's talking about here. The same thing being prophesied against in chapter 7. It's here in history. 2 Kings chapter 17. 
And now we see the heart of God. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before them. And then the customs of the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They thought they were secret, didn't they, kids? But God sees. All that stuff is coming before God's face. Mm. They built for themselves high places in all the towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill, under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, including Hosea, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with, with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants and prophets. But they would not listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. They followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them. They should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. They made for themselves metal images of two calves. They made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. Frisky critters. None of them was left but just the tribe of Judah only. Wow. You see God's heart in there. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You could argue that that was like a marriage ceremony. That was like, there it is right there. God just wooed Israel, brought them out of slavery, and then said, now you're mine, I am your husband. And here is now our covenant, our marriage covenant called the law, the Ten Commandments, boom. And our wilderness wanderings were like the early days of our marriage. All that God did for Israel. 2 Kings 17 pulled no punches. God cared for Israel. Israel responded to that love with rebellion. Oh my goodness. Search your heart. Oh listener to these words. In what ways do you respond to God's love? This has been Big Rev from Hosea chapter 6 and 7. God bless you. Thanks for letting me share.
This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.